Welcome to Physics Forever and Quill Forever's On The Wing Podcast. And it is the best time of year. Bird seasons are opening up left and right. And we are on the cusp of pheasant hunting season opening up in Montana, Minnesota, North Dakota, all coming on October the 10th. And we've got uh, a, a really fun and interesting and educational on a couple of different levels episode for you today. Um, it, it's going to take two tracks. On one hand, with us being on the, the eve of the hunt, pheasant hunting opener, we're going to talk about how to take better photos. None of us want uh, those grip and grin dead bird tailgate photos filling up Instagram. Uh, we want to take some of those the, the photos of our dogs and our friends and our family that we'll cherish forever and will be representative of the special places, people, and birds that we, we chase every fall. And then uh, we'll also have a conversation with our, our same featured guest about how to make a pheasant hunter. Um, and he's got a really, really interesting um, story to tell in that regard. So uh, without further ado, let me uh, introduce our guests for this particular episode. Uh, joining me for his second time, well, that's, you've probably been on more than twice on uh, on the Wink podcast because you're on a rooster road trip too. Uh, I'm talking to Logan Hinners, our senior graphic designer, um, design manager. Boy, I butchered your title there too, didn't uh, I? That's all good. Graphic design manager. So I remember you were on the, the shed hunting episode with Tom Dockin. Correct. And yep. then you were at least on one rooster road trip podcast um, each each the last couple of years, right? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. I've been on a, a few of these now. So um, we'll give her a whirl again. It, it has been a while. Well, and, and you are the person I particularly wanted to join me on this episode for a couple of different reasons. You're, you're, you have the eyes that select, well, between you and Emily, you select every photo that people, our members, bird hunters, supporters see on our website, on our social media, on the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever calendars, and on the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever journal. So if there's a there's a photo that's appeared in front of our members, either you or Emily picked it out and made made the case that that's the illustration. And that's how our featured guest um, came came on our radar, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct. So yeah, I, I definitely enjoy that aspect of of my position with Pheasants Forever. You know, I it gives me a way to, um, I, I don't know, I'm just always drawn to the, to the emotions and, and, and kind of the spirit of the uplands, if you will. And I've always enjoyed looking at other folks' photography. And um, I don't know, to me, a, a photo is worth a thousand words. So I've always been a visual guy, obviously, being in art and design. Um, so I always kind of gravitated towards that. And over the years, I started doing more of my own photography and, and working more with uh, freelance photographers. And I guess, you know, I, I love to hate social media, but there's a, a time and place for it. Um, you know, in, in this regard, it's it's super helpful. Mm -hmm. in, 
um, tracking new photographers down, um, seeing work across the country, you know, in different regions, different perspectives. Um, you know, it, it allows me a, a way or an avenue to, to connect with folks who are authentic, um, you know, can capture that image in an authentic manner and, and represents our brand in a, in a way that, you know, I, I think is fitting. And I guess that's, that's kind of how Eric and I connected, um, through Instagram. You know, I, I was following him, seeing a bunch of his posts and, and images he was taking and thought he did a great job, um, you know, just, just capturing the spirit of the uplands. And, uh, so I reached out and we connected, started talking and, you know, I think, one thing led to another and um, Eric and I realized we had a lot of commonalities and, you know, whether that was, you know, both being from Minnesota, you know, grew up, he, he said he's lived in Cambridge, you know, that's 20 minutes north of where I live currently. Um, you know, everything from that to the passion for the outdoors, bird dogs, um, you know, the upland scene, you know, just through and through fly fishing, you know, it, we just connected on a lot of different levels. So that was, that was pretty fun. Even though we've never, never met in person, we've talked <laughs> a lot of emails and, and now here we are on the podcast. Yeah, he, and Eric lives in uh, Montana. And I think, you know, we'll ask Eric to tell his story. We we're talking to Eric Peterson is the featured guest we've been alluding to. And we'll have Eric tell his story. But, you know, when, when I first knew, learned of Eric is like, Holy cow, here's a guy who grew up in central Minnesota. He went to St. Cloud State, I think pretty much the same years as I did. I've never known him before until you brought him up on Instagram because he was taking these bird hunting photos, pheasant hunting pictures in Montana that were just wow. The wow factor was off the charts. And that's when you brought his, him, his name to, to my attention. And we've been our paths have, have crossed undoubtedly but we never met before the like you say the 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 good and the bad of social media and and this is definitely one of the good pieces of it right yeah uh, how many just before we have before we talk to eric how many photographers do you think you've met purely as a result of instagram where you wouldn't have even known of their existence, Logan? I'd say several, Bob. I mean, I think there was some some holdovers from my predecessor, you know, just people that we'd worked with in the past, you know, like Lon Laubers, um, Gary Kramers of the world, you know, some of the, the staples in the photography world. And, um, you know, beyond those, you know, there's maybe a handful of those guys. Denver Bryant would be another one. Um, you know, beyond that, I think just about everybody that, um, has collaborated with us on, you know, photography or as a freelance photographer is, has been pulled, you know, via Instagram is a big one. Um, you know, mm. I'll find some things through, through Facebook, but I, I'd say primarily, um, the visual photo people, um, are using Instagram and that's where mm. I'm finding a lot of these, these photos and, and making these connections. Um, you know, and it, it makes my work as a, as a graphic designer and laying out our publications and, and doing a lot of our marketing materials, a much easier job when I have great photography to go hand in hand with the, the write up or, you know, to tell our story. So, um, yeah. And I always like incorporating some new, new voices, new perspectives. You know, I, I think that's important. Um, so it, it's pretty cool to be able to connect with folks on that level and, um, bring them into the organization and, um, yeah, just diversify kind of our imagery. 
Well, we've been talking about you for eight minutes and not let you get in a word yet, Aaron. Uh, welcome welcome uh, to On The Wing Podcast. I guess the first question before we, we have you tell the story, well, let's pull on this Instagram thread for a moment. From a photographer's perspective, has it been as much of a game changer as it has for our side of the equation? Yeah. Hey guys, thanks for uh, having me on. It's exciting to be here and to chat with you both. Um, yeah, we were. I was actually having this conversation with some photographer friends this weekend and talking about like the big, the big events in photography in recent history was at least from my perspective. And I, uh, I graduated from St. Cloud State. Let's see, two thousand five, I believe it was. So when I was there doing some photography for the newspaper, for the college newspaper, we were still shooting film. And for, you know, early on it was in the dark room. And then the next year it was shooting film, but getting it scanned or, you know, getting it developed and scanning the film. And then my very first job out of college was with the first digital camera. So that transition of, um, of film to digital was one of the big disruptors in the industry. Mm. And then, and then, yeah, I mean the digital, the digital bring, uh, digital cameras coming on board was obviously a pretty big disruptor, but I'd say next after that would be Instagram as far as like changing the landscape of photography as we know it, um, yeah. both for good and bad. Like, you know, obviously Logan's finding really talented photographers that maybe otherwise wouldn't be on his radar without Instagram. Um, I'm, you know, meeting, it seems like everybody, every other person in, in the greater Bozeman, Montana area has a camera in hand as a, and is now either a filmmaker or a photographer. So, which is great because it's that, it's that many more people to collaborate and learn from and work with. So I, I view it, that part as a positive. There's obviously yeah. uh, plenty of negatives that go along with it if you allow that. Um, and that's, I'm sure, a constant battle that most of us face. But yeah, it's... Uh, it's changed my my work world a lot. Well, just on the negative front, um, is it is it the, the trolls attacking you for certain things with your photography, or is it people stealing images without? I mean, this is how you make your living. What 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 are some of the negatives from a professional photographer's point of view? Uh, market saturation. Mm -hmm. would be one of them I'd say there's just a lot more people making images and selling images whether it's their profession or not so you know having your voice elevated and heard becomes a little harder um and then I think I mean I think the reality that all of us face is that we need to keep it in check for ourselves to make sure it doesn't take over our lives because that's an easy sure. it's you know it's created to do that so just mm -hmm. keeping that in check is also a challenge. But I, I mean, for the most part, it's a positive influence on my business. I'm getting my, my photos in front of eyeballs that I would otherwise never be able to. I mean, the old model was you go to New York and meet with agents and agencies and try and pitch your work. So from that perspective, it, it, it helps a lot. It's yeah, a lot easier. Okay. Um, I, so we, we've talked a little bit about your background. Oh, I'm sorry, Logan, did I interrupt you? No, well, I was just going to say, you know, I could, I could see from Eric's standpoint, you know, as a, a professional photographer, someone who's probably, you know, invested time at school and, you know, 
has a degree in it. There's, he, he kind of made the point. There's seems like everybody has a camera now a day. And, um, there's a lot of people that are, are taking great photos that, that don't come with, you know, haven't invested the time or the, the background, I, I think, um, could be a criticism or a downfall. You know, we like to throw the term around all the time in our department. You know, there's a lot of backseat marketers, um, people who think they know. Um, but then there's a lot of people that have invested the time and, and really know the ins and outs of a camera. Um, and that's how they're able to make a living doing it. Yeah. We, we bounced around your background a little bit, Eric, but uh, tell us, uh, tell us about you, where you grew up and how you got involved in the outdoors and, and then ultimately photography. Yeah, I, um, I grew up in Cambridge, Minnesota, uh, the son of a avid hunter. Um, my dad is still lives to hunt. And so that was, that was the upbringing I came up in. We were, we spent most of our time, my three brothers and I, there were four of us boys, uh, outdoors, whether it was hunting or fishing or, you know, building forts or whatever. Um, so it was a pretty idyllic lifestyle growing up outside and, and doing all the fun things that, um, that my dad was passionate about. And that, um, when I left, when I graduated college, when I graduated, graduated from St. Cloud State University, I had my truck packed and was ready to go because I knew the place that I wanted to be was Montana. I had been coming out to Montana and working um, construction in the summers through college. So it was I was sort of just biding my time until I could graduate and get to the place that I really wanted to be because I had I had gotten a little taste of of Nirvana and <laughs> I just wanted to, <laughs> to make it my home. So uh between the the hunting out here and the fishing and the skiing and the mountains and it was it kind of checked all the boxes of the things that i love to do so i moved out here the day i graduated college um, worked construction for about a year and then got my first job in photography at a at a small daily newspaper in hmm. southeast montana so i i spent um about a deck about yeah, 10 to 12 years in the newspaper industry as a staff photographer in Southwest Ooh. Montana. Um, and part of the beauty of that world of newspaper photography is that it's just so diverse. So you're always covering different, interesting, unique stories and people and learning, learning to share those stories. Um, and then, uh, around 2011, 2010, 2011, just as the newspaper industry was starting to struggle, I, left the industry and went out on my own and started doing freelance work. Um, primarily in the beginning, it was magazine editorial work um, with some amount of commercial photography. And then I actually did a little um, adjunct teaching in the journalism department at University of Montana in Missoula. Um, and that was a really good experience, which turned into a master's program. So I went to school i went back to school and got my master's degree in environmental journalism which was essentially the the process of, of storytelling sciences like how to communicate things in the outdoor and science world to the general public so that was a good experience and that sort of launched me into the film world i, did, I made my first film while there which uh, was my thesis project um, and that kind of got me down this other path so so just in the last five years the road has sort of forked and about half my time is spent in still photography, primarily in the outdoor, um, in the outdoor world. And then the other half is making kind of 
short outdoor adventure films. Um, yeah. And between photography and film, are there really distinctly different rules for, that you pay attention to, or are they more similar than different? Uh, yes and no. The, the technical part is much different. The storytelling, like that journalism background, that core storytelling is the same, regardless of the work that I'm doing. I try and, um, I try and bring that experience with me in, in whatever I'm shooting, whether it's a, a film or, or, a, or a photo story. It's that, um, you know, that, that base level that I learned in, the, in journalism in Saint, at St. Cloud is like, character is important and narrative arc is important. Those things that you learn, mm -hmm. that, I mean, that's still what I fall back on today. So those parts are similar. You know, the, the technical stuff is all different and um, there's a lot more moving parts with film than with stills, but um, it's, been, it's been a real joy in my career just to, to mix it up like 20 years in as a photographer to throw a wrench in it and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this thing that's still creative and visual, but completely different on so many levels. So that's been really fun. So we'll, um, we'll tease the film part towards the end of this conversation because there will undoubtedly be a second episode with Eric Peterson uh, at the end of 20, 2020 or early 2021. But with um, uh, the, the hunting season, you know, right here, let's talk about um, some tips for the bird hunters out there as they're getting ready for the season to, to get underway to take just better photography for their own Instagram feeds. It, it, it doesn't have to be um, professional worthy. They're not going to go sell this, but just something that they will feel proud of. And maybe they'll, they'll make into, um, you know, that those eight by 10 photos that turn into, you know, something they frame on their wall. Right, rather than the chicken, you know, holding two, <laughs> two, two pheasants by their necks in front of a tailgate, which, which we've all seen and giggled at. Um, what so, from a starting place, what would you recommend that people avoid? So, you know, the, the tail, the classic tailgate to me is something that. Like, just don't even take photos at the tailgate, right? It's like rule number one, no tailgate shots. But what, what as, as a professional, a person that, you know, like we, we, you know, gravitate to, like Logan's mentioned, you know, Instagram turned his head instantly from the photos you, you've taken. What are some of the things to avoid for just the average person? Um, it's funny you bring up the tailgate shot because that was literally the last photo I took while bird hunting was <laughs> my dogs and the birds on the tailgate. And I, and I was thinking about that and I was like, why, why is that? That that's, well, I think what it is, is a, it's the end of the hunt, right? So you can think about, oh yeah, I should get a photo to, to mm -hmm. memorialize this day. And B, it elevates the subject off the ground because I think the only thing worse than a tailgate photo is a photo looking down at a bird laying on the ground, which is so one-dimensional, you can almost not even see what it is unless it happens to be a rooster and there's some right. color. Right. So like, I think... It's so much like roadkill, right? Like yeah. who stops to take a photo of roadkill? <laughs> but that's what it looks like when there's a dead bird laying in the grass. It's like, yeah. this this doesn't honor the, the species at all. Yeah, the only differentiation between roadkill and a, and a 
and a bird you shot was that you might put a shotgun next to it or a dog next to it, but still the bird is lost in the photo then and you're looking at a shot of your dog, your gun and some gray matter, uh, you know, in a mound. Um, so I think, I think considering that, I would say, you know, avoid the tailgate shot, but think about how you can recreate the effect that has. So what I try and do is, you know, if there's an old building or an old fence post that you can hang them from, I try and keep a lanyard or a tether of some sort where um, I'm still memorializing the day and the birds and the, and the, and the memory, but it's not uh, on the back of the truck. Mm-hmm. And then that gets the bird off the ground and kind of, takes care of that too. I I don't necessarily like the the grip and grin, although that's kind of the, the go-to, but a line of people with a line of dead critters isn't very visually appealing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think just, I think thinking through an alternative to that is not, is not very hard. Even, you know, like I said, if it's a fence poster, if it's some other, natural element that you can incorporate in that makes a big difference i probably the biggest tip i would have is is an old national geographic saying which is f8 and be there meaning f8 meaning like your your camera is set close enough that if you push the shutter button you're going to get a usable frame and then you're there in the situation whatever it is so you're ready for when Mm -hmm. it happens And, and to me that means you're carrying something with you to capture these images in the field. Because I think if you really want to avoid the gripping grin and make a more memorable photo, it's going to happen out in the field while it's happening. And that kind of goes along with the storytelling aspect of it. I think there's a lot more revealed in a, in a field photo, whether it's the dog retrieving the bird to hand or, you know, the, the dog on point or, or your, your buddy who just picked the bird up off the ground and that emotion is still there. They're still fired up and, um, I think that tells a lot more than setting up a photo after the fact and trying to recreate that excitement around the hunt. Logan, have you ever heard F8 and be there? I have not, but I'm going to use that on the road trip. That's weird. <laughs> but I think that's a great point that Eric made. And I think that's probably why I gravitate towards his images in some of our publications too. I think he does a great job of doing just that. And those photos pull me in. Um, you know, I feel like I'm there. I'm part of the hunt, even though it, it maybe happened two years ago. I, I can look at the image and and feel a part of it versus like the tailgate shot. You know, the the stuff that we've talked about is is kind of detractors. I they just don't do a lot for me. Um, so I, I I too would align with that, and I think that's super important. And um, I think one one for me, Bob, is is clutter, um, being sensitive to all this the stuff that comes with upland hunting, um, gear and you know, whether it's dog gear, hunting gear, um, there seems to be a lot of clutter, spent shotgun shells, just cleaning some stuff up, mm-hmm. half drinking bottles of water, you know, just just moving some of that stuff to the side can help the aesthetic of a shot a lot. That was another thing I had on my list, Logan, was was paying attention to the background because it's it's easy to get caught up in the moment and you're looking at the subject and the birds and the gun or whatever, but there's all this other stuff generally in the background that if you just shifted your perspective or, or shifted the line of sight on the photo or whatever it is, a, a small adjustment can really clean it up and make the subject pop out. Hmm. Right. I think about the difference between taking a photo of a pheasant versus any other upland species. Like a pheasant to me 
I mean, not universally, but you could pull a present out of your vest that's been there for three hours and it still has some photogenic quality. You pull a rough grouse or a bobwhite quail out of your vest after three minutes and it just looks like a ball of feathers. So what's there's got to be a tip there, too, based on the different birds, doesn't there? It's like if you shoot a grouse, like get your photos instantly. I mean, is that is it as simple, simple as that? I think I think you have to make your photos immediately because as soon as it goes in the vest, there's blood smeared around. If you're shooting sharp tails, there's blood everywhere. Mm. Right. Uh, The feathers get matted and marred. And yeah, I just I think. You're a lot better off shooting it immediately before it even goes in the vest. That makes a big difference. The other thing is the rooster is always going to be like, I think that's part of why I love pheasant hunting more than anything else is that gaudy color, that be- that bright, beautiful. They're always going to make a more beautiful photo than a sharp-tailed grouse just by virtue of their own color and beauty. Mm. Logan, I, I'll argue that Logan holds the distinction is the world's best hunter slash photographer at the same time um, <laughs> so i so just to be clear i'm not saying logan's the best hunter in the in the world or the best <laughs> photographer in the world but when a person tries to do both at the same time logan's got to be really high on that list because he's got he's got stuff slung all over the place right and he's whipping out the camera and he's whipping the shotgun as a person that lives in that environment and your survival depends on the photo, (laughs) do you do them both at the same time or do you make a um, mental choice to pick up either the shotgun or the camera? Or is it like, hell no, I can't give up either. (laughs) Mostly it's the latter. Hell no, I can't give up either of them. (laughs) But (laughs) the further I get into this, the more I'm like, I need to dedicate this part of the day to photography and this part of the day to hunting, because otherwise they both are kind of, they both suffer a bit. (laughs) Um, I have this year more than ever, I've been carrying a small DSLR camera in my game vest and just shooting as I go rather than, rather than my phone one, because I don't like having the distraction of my phone in my pocket um, when I'm hunting. And two, because I mean, obviously the, the DSLR just makes better images. Hmm. Um, so I have been carrying the camera. It's made such a difference. I've, I've enjoyed my hunting more because I'm out there for two reasons. If I don't get anything, I can still get some beautiful imagery and feel like it was a valuable day watching the dogs run, watching the sun come up, and then coming home with some some pretty photos as well. So that's been kind of a fun switch for me because in the past if i'm hunting i'll leave the camera and just go hunting if i'm shooting i'll leave the gun and just go photograph so try i'm trying to have the best of both worlds and it only ever happens to work out occasionally <laughs> it's a tough balance that's for sure it is. It is. when you're carrying the dslr i've heard folks talk about you know the body of a camera you know it's it's they're really a horse apiece most of the bodies you know, there's not a marginal difference between any of the bodies where you make the images. It's in the, in the lenses, the glass. So how important is it when you have a camera 
in the field that you're just whipping out of your game vest, I mean, you could have some pretty expensive glass on that body and be dangerously close to, to, to damaging the lens. What do you go with? How, how do you balance that? Okay. I got enough for what I need to capture usable photos and versus, um, you know, capture ones that you're going to be able to sell. What's, what's it cost to put the right lens on there for the field? Mm. That was a long winded question. I apologize. No, I get, no, that makes sense. I get it. Um, I don't, you're right. The, the image is made more in the glass than the body. That said, I think for the most part, you and your listeners could get away with a $200 lens and you're still going to make more appealing images than what you would get out of your phone Ooh. because you have more control over what, what you're shooting, what you're setting. Um, and I don't carry an expensive lens with me when I'm hunting. I just carry a small, usually I carry a small 50 millimeter 1.8 and that's Ooh. kind of close to what our eye sees. So it's not a zoom lens and it's not a wide angle lens. It's a pretty similar perspective to what we see with our naked eye. Um, if I'm shooting for a project specifically, I'll obviously leave the gun and carry a, a bigger fleet of lenses so that I can, you know, as I see a situation arising, maybe it calls for a wide angle or maybe it calls for a long lens. So that does change, but if I'm just out hunting, shooting, I carry a small camera body with a small lens and, and challenge myself that way. Hmm. How's that compared to what you're carrying Logan on the road trip? Yeah. I've so like the road trip, um, there's some sponsor obligations tied to that. And we do a lot of product photography too, um, along with, you know, capturing the hunt in the field. And I think last yeah, it was last year, the year before I made a switch, I think it's 24 by 70. Um, and that, that felt like about the right lens for me to, to kind of do everything that I needed to do. Mm. Um, you know, get some of those close up, you know, product shots, but yet be able to take photos kind of as Eric alluded to that are, are more like what we would see perspective wise in the field. Um, yeah, I've carried around, uh, looking at it right now, it's a 70 by 200, which is a pretty big zoom lens um you know, that that felt too big um you know it's not big enough to to get those bird beauty shots the few times that you do see a, a bird off in the distance it's not big enough to reach out and really touch those um but it was definitely too big in a line of hunters um, mm -hmm. fade way back and then um i didn't feel like i was like a part of of the hunt at that point and mm -hmm. i think I guess that's what why I continue to to carry both the the shotgun and camera at the same time is um, when I'm doing both I feel like I, I'm there I'm living it um, I, I I think there's some crossover in the in the photos when you do do that too I mean you're kind of in the moment you're seeing things as they happen in real time and and capturing them and it gives that 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 photo an authentic feel. I see Eric shaking his head he's he's picking up that same vibe. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I, if I could fit it in my game vest comfortably, the 24 to 70 is what I would carry on every hunt. It's just a little, I've got the two point F 2.8, which is just a little bit 
heavier, bulkier lens than what I like to have in the game vest. Once I, you know, put a few roosters back there, you can only carry so much weight. Uh, <laughs> and just for like pulling out quickly, it's, it's, it's just a little more unwieldy, but if I'm shooting, it's, if I'm like focused on photography for the day, I'm carrying a 24 to 70 and a 70 to 200. And those are kind of the two go-tos for me that kind of, that covers the range of everything from wide angle to compressed um, telephoto. So you talked about the importance of, uh, you know, a fence post or having some twine or game straps with you to, you know, in terms of props along the way. Anything else mm -hmm. that folks should be considering in terms of, uh, oh, just some hacks from a professional photographer's perspective that, that are going to make um, hunting in the field photographs pop? Well, I think... A real basic review on on photography would go a long way. There's some there's a few things you can do, you know, paying attention to light. Generally, the rule is keep the keep the sun at your back, and that will light your subject the most. Uh, yeah, composition, um, you know, there's a thing called the rule of thirds where you break up your your frame into thirds each direction, and you want your subject in one of those um, crosshairs where the where they meet. Um, so some of those basic photography rules that might sound simple if you've been around photography some, but, um, is probably new to a lot of listeners who maybe haven't had a background in photography, but those go a long way. They're, they're basic rules for a reason, right? Cause, mm. cause they make a big difference. So, um, I think things like rule of thirds, paying attention to your light, your composition, um, where your subject matter is in relation to what's in the background, things like that can make a huge difference. And then as soon as you get those rules dialed in and down, then you break the rules. And that's what makes more, even more interesting photos. Mm -hmm. Like you, you backlight your subject rather than have the light at your back. And then you, you end up with some creative lighting, things like that. You talked earlier about um, the reason that people take photos at the tailgate is because it elevates things. Um, there's an important component of that when taking dog photos too, right? Like, mm, like yeah. how should people take the best dog photos? Yeah. I mean, I think like, if you thought of it any other way, if you were shooting a portrait of your kid, you wouldn't stand up and point down at your kid sitting on the floor because it, there's a number of things there. Like the, the, you're putting them in a, in a position of being below you so that there's, there's, something that comes with that. And then, and then it sort of flattens them into the ground. So it, they don't, they're, they're less 3d, they're more one dimensional. There's a lot, there's a lot in the positioning of the subject. Um, so I think that translate into any photography you do, you want your subject more at an eye level. Hmm. You want them, um, you know, if, if they're backed up, you, you want them to kind of pop out from the background. So you wouldn't back somebody up right against a wall to take the photo. You know, you want to isolate them a little bit. So Logan, as you think about, uh, you know, searching Instagram for a ton of photos, uh, for all sorts of different purposes, anything that we haven't touched upon that would be important for the, the our followers out there, the um, when they're looking to gram their experience uh, this hunting season, any uh, any other recommendation or hacks you think about? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think Eric made a uh, 
a good point on, you know, understanding rules and, and breaking rules. I, I, I've said in the past, like, um, rules are meant to be broken, but first you got to understand the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think mm-hmm. that was a great point. And with that, um, you know, I think you can take that a, a step further. And um, I, I always feel it makes a big difference to move your own perspective, move your feet, your, your body position in relation to the subject matter. Um, you can get some pretty, pretty cool, like unique shots that way, just mm. by changing your, your relative position um, versus the subject matter. And, um, you know, that's, that's a little hack, I guess, you know, to, to change the, the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something I do quite a bit. Um, and then just, you know, seeing those moments that, that capture emotion and, um, and I guess just trying to capture them, you know, as they happen, I think it's, it's true and authentic and, and people can see that, um, and relate to it. So that's a perfect transition to the next portion of our conversation, which is the, the making of a pheasant hunter portion. You talked about capturing emotion. And I know that, so this started with Eric sending in some photos to you of a little boy and a puppy. Tell us about uh, that piece of the story, Logan. Yeah, so we're, we're working on our um, Cousins Forever Fall issue. Um, we, you know, we, we kind of had some of the, the main feature storyline from our editor. And, um, yeah, I was reaching out to my Rolodex of photographers, um, just trying to, you know, find a collection of images that I, I would have at my disposal, if you will, as, it, as time came to, to design and put this publication together. And, um, yeah, I, I reached out to Eric and, and was talking to him about some photos that I was interested in using and kind of said, oh, by the way, I'm also looking for this type of subject matter. And um, lo and behold, what, what he sent over, what, I mean, it, it's, it's probably one of the, I don't know how, how to phrase it to even give it the right words, but it, it's probably one of the more powerful images I've seen personally, um, the emotion, you know, everything that that image stands for or, or tells without even saying a word, just, just the image itself. I, it's just super powerful. And it just struck me the second I saw it. So, um, yeah, I, I reached out and, um, got a little more information on the image, you know, who, who is the little boy, you know, bird, just trying to get some background. So I knew, and I guess that led into another, another conversation with Eric, that that was actually one of his, his younger boys and his, his bird dog. And, um, so I, I guess that's how we got to the, the feature story that's, that's being published or was just published in the fall issue that you'll be getting in the mailboxes soon. So we'll get, we'll add a little bit more context. Um, you know, Eric is a white Caucasian Minnesotan, um, and, and the backdrop of what's happening in the United States over the course of the spring and the summer, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever made a, a commitment to being an organization that's more inclusive and in reaching out to not only um, gen, you know, both genders in, in a better way, but uh, um, other ethnicities. And from Logan's perspective, that meant finding better representation of women and ethnicities in our photography. And lo and behold, Eric sends in these photos of um, two youngsters. One's a, a white Caucasian little boy and one's an African-American little boy. So so now that the stage is set 
Eric, tell us the story of, of uh, the rest of your your life as a father and, and uh, where those images came together from. So, yeah, my wife and I had a biological son named Henry. He's now uh, 12 years old. And um, around the time, shortly after Faith and I got married, um, I started doing international work for some international nonprofits. So I was traveling around the world in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Africa and um, all over Central Asia uh, doing documentary photography, documentary photography. And on one of those trips in Africa, um, I was working with a a non-governmental NGO, basically Mm -hmm. an international nonprofit that worked with orphans. And uh, on Valentine's Day, 2009, um, I went into an orphanage to, to make some photos and met this little baby who had just been brought in days before, and he was a tiny little uh, five-month-old baby. And my wife and I had, since we were first married, had talked about adoption, and we had actually started the process already hmm. um, when I was when I was over there. So, to make a long story short, I met this amazing little dude and. Um, went back that night and called my wife from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia and said, I think I just, I think I just met our, our new son. Huh. And uh, through a fairly long process, we were able to connect those dots and, um, and adopt Casa. So he came back with us. So we made a couple more trips over there through the adoption process. And then we brought him back here to Montana um, when he was about one year old and Henry was two then. So uh, we went from, we went from one to two sort of overnight and um, have never looked back and there, and it's been an amazing experience for us. And it's been uh, fantastic to have, well, two boys, but two boys who are close enough in age that they're good buddies and, um, and to have a personality so unlike my wife and my personality that he brings a lot of joy and humor to our house because he's so unlike us. <laughs> he's, he's not a, a classic Midwestern uh, personality. He's very outgoing and funny and rambunctious. So it's been a really cool experience for us. So Henry, um, Henry's your, your older son, right? Henry's our older son. Yep. And what what's Henry's personality like in comparison? Henry's very Henry's a classic Midwestern kind of quiet, <laughs> kind of shy, kind of uh, understated. Huh. A lot. Of, I shouldn't say that. A lot more like my family of Midwestern people. Huh. <laughs> so um, so they're they're polar opposites in so many ways. Their skin color being probably the least of them, but. Uh, but they get along fantastically and, and it's so much fun to have two opposite boys like that. And tell me about the, the component about getting, growing them up into the outdoors, particularly as pheasant hunters. Was this something that you were actively, that was important from you to you from the beginning or did they see dad going and doing this stuff? Uh, for for work and gravitated to it kind of organically. What was the path there? 
We're still on the path for sure. I'm just kind of getting started. Henry's doing hunter safety this year. He's hunted the last two years through the through Montana's apprenticeship program, where they can be if they're accompanied by an adult, they can hunt um, certain species. So, and then Casa started that last year, and we'll be doing the apprenticeship program again this year. So we're like right in the middle of it. It was not a, it was not something they necessarily saw me doing, wanted to do. It was more curated than that. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I take my cues, you know, in this world from my dad, like how to get kids interested in the outdoors is include them as much as possible and make it fun, but real, fun, but realistic. So that's, that's one of those fine lines that if you're a parent, you walk, whether it's pheasant hunting or, or whatever it is, it's, it's finding that balance between making it fun, but, but keeping it realistic so that it's not just, a ride in the car with a lot of treats, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably closer to the way it started out in the beginning was a lot of driving around, looking at pheasants out the window, me wishing I could get out and hunt them, them happy to be snacking on donuts or whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the, the central image that Logan was referring to earlier is, is Casa holding up a German short haired puppy, kissing the, kissing the pup, like most of us have have kissed a, a new puppy into our home and and you know that that image is the centerpiece of the the feature story which you wrote that's in the fall journal and all the images honestly like you know i i reference like early in the the question about you know the path that these kids are on the smiles on their face when they're with dad holding up these roosters it feels like they're already hardcore bird hunters, right? Because yeah. recognizing the fact that they're still going through their hunter mentor training and, yeah. you know, their apprenticeship. I'm looking at a photo. I think it's on page 46 or will be on page 46 of Casa and Henry on either side of you. And, and Casa's grin, like it explodes <laughs> off the page how excited he is to be holding this rooster. It it just looks like a bird hunt with your boys would be the greatest time in, on the planet. So, it, 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 and I'm sure that, you know, they took a lot of donuts to get there. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess part of the question is how important have the puppies in your family been part of that, uh, that growth process? Because they're in almost every one of the photos. And, mm. and most of the time, the puppies are not on the ground. The puppies are in your boy's arms. <laughs> so they, they certainly are, are parts of your family too and part of that process. Yeah, the, the, I think that's one of their favorite parts about bird hunting is just being able to be around their dogs because they love their dogs. Casa is such an animal person. He just adores his dogs. And if he has free time, he's out in the yard playing with them or throwing the ball for them. Or, so I think hunting has become for him an extension of getting to play with his puppies, basically. Mm. Yeah, they adore them for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's been, I think anybody who's raised kids in the hunting world can speak to this like or can understand this. It's, it's a process. You start out um, trying to trying to get them excited about something that they don't really understand. Mm. And, and that 
for me meant including the dogs and including some treats. And then I didn't want it to be easy. Like I want, I also want to instill some amount of grit in my kids. Mm. So there's that, there's that balancing act of making it fun, but making it real. The way I've started doing that is each year we go on, on our boys hunt up to Northern Montana and visit a friend up there who lives up there and it's fantastic pheasant hunting and we get to go spend a long weekend uh, hunting. And this will be the fifth year that we've done that. Just the two boys and I, and the place we stay is like, it's essentially a VRBO. My buddy has his upstairs set up like a, a bird hunter's paradise. So when we get there, we eat really well. We sleep really well. It's essentially a catered, you know, really well set up, which is not how I want my kids to view hunting in the, in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. So I've taken to packing the tent and sleeping bags. And on the way up, we camp out one night just to add a little bit of grit to the, to the um, trip and add a little bit of, you know, challenge and sleep on the ground and maybe get a little cold at night and maybe not have all the comforts of home and, and add that element to their memory bank of, of what it means to pheasant hunt. Yeah. So what grade are they in right now? You said, are they 11 and 12? Is that their age? 11 and 12, yeah, fourth and fifth grade. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and, and they go to Bozeman schools in Bozeman. No, I live outside of Bozeman in a small town, so they're in a in a small rural school. So when they go to school and then come back, are, are they talking hunting with their classmates? Or oh, man, yeah, oh man. In fact, Henry wasn't sure he wanted to deer hunt last year, and and I said that's fine. We'll just we'll just duck hunt and pheasant hunt. Um, that's a, that's sort of where he was at. Um maturity wise anyway he wasn't i didn't feel like he was quite ready to jump into deer hunting but boy as soon as deer hunting started and his buddies started showing him pictures of their deer he changed his mind pretty quickly and was like dad can we go deer hunting <laughs> so huh. yeah they're, ta- they're talking about it and they're looking at pictures of each other's deer already um so he's actually last night he said i think i want to deer hunt this year and i said all right well that means we have to get out and practice with the rifle then because that's a big that's a big responsibility so that's uh, on the agenda for this fall. It looks like very fun. So it, yeah. with with their their obvious differences in in skin color, ha, have they been are they treated differently in any way as they've been um, approaching mm-hmm. the upland world, or is it um, is that not the case? Yeah, I, I mean, I think. I don't think I'll ever fully understand all that Casa goes through um, just being black in Montana, in Mm. small town Montana. I think he carries a a burden with him that I'll never fully understand. So I don't know that, I, I don't know that I can parse that out into the upland world versus the regular world. I think, that goes with him wherever he is. Hmm. You know, from an upland perspective, I guess I, my goal is to give him, and, and other people of color, other non-traditional hunters, a space in that world. Because I, I, I don't feel like there's been traditionally much space in that world for them. I mean, if you look at 
popular media in the, in the hunting industry, there's, you don't see a lot of representation of people of color or, you know, even women until more recently. So I, I think it's hard. It's, I, I can't imagine Casa being able to claim hunting for himself or claim upland hunting or find a space in that world unless we deliberately put role models in place or, or start including those people in our media and in our, you know, what we see in the world. Mm -hmm. I think he needs to be able to identify with other people of color who are pheasant hunting Yeah. in order to, I mean, I think that's the reason he loves soccer so much is he can, he can see other black people playing soccer. He can, he can see himself in those shoes and, and find and see a space for him in that world. Mm. That makes sense. It, it does. And it, I'm, I'm guessing that, well, I, I don't know. As an 11-year-old, have you had that conversation with him? Or is that, um, in terms of seeing role models in the publications he looks at, or is it just happened organically as a result of he sees folks that he can identify with visually in soccer so it gravitates to it. Have you had the conversations or has it just happened? Um, I think mostly it's just happened. I mean, we have conversations around the topic mm -hmm. and, and around things that happened to him or things that are, you know, said to him at school or whatever. We, we have to have those conversations with him. I don't know that we've had that specific conversation of, what would what would this look like to you if you saw more black people in Pheasants Forever magazine or Outdoor Life magazine or whatever? Right. You know, sure. uh, I don't think he's quite mature enough to, at that age to fully wrap his brain around that. But for me, as his dad and a and and someone who's creating media in this space, it's important to me that um, that he be you know that he is able to find a a role model and ho hopefully you know he and i can be part of that change yeah it you could see it uh, i'm i'm guessing folks can hear it in your voice i could see it on your face this is uh you, this is pretty important to you and you're in an incredibly unique position to have an impact on that change being you know arguably say one of the 20 most well-known upland photographers in the world and here you are you're the father of a kid with a grin that lights up a page who happens to have a little bit different skin color yeah. than the majority of bird hunters this this is clearly pretty important to you it is it's really important to me i appreciate your kind words um yeah i mean if i if i can make a difference with my photography that would be the the ultimate use of, of that gift. Yeah. Um, and this feels, this feels like the right place for that. It feels like the, t you know, my passion for upland hunting, my passion for photography and my love for my son who happens to be black all coming together. This feels like a really good fit at a time when the world certainly needs as much of this conversation as we can have. Right. You know, when, when pheasants forever first asked about me writing this story in my mind, I immediately said, there's no way. Cause I don't, I don't have any real estate in that. I don't have a say in that 
I'm, I'm a middle-class white guy who was born, like I won the lottery of birth. I was born in the U.S. My parents are, you know, middle-class, happy, healthy, still married. Like I won the lottery of birth. I don't have a voice in this discussion is what I felt. Um, I talked to some close friends who encouraged me that our story is worth sharing and there's, you know, something to be learned from, from our story. So I'm grateful that, that they talked me into it because it's been, it's been really powerful for me to have to put words to all of this that I'm, you know, going through. And hopefully it's, I, hopefully this isn't about me. Hopefully this sparks conversation or discussion or, um, brings the subject matter up in circles that maybe otherwise wouldn't be talking about this. Cause certainly, you know, the upland space is not the first um, arena to, to be tackling this subject. And I'm proud and honored that pheasants forever is and, and trying to do it right. I'm, I'm impressed with that. Well, we, we won't claim to be perfect in our past, our current or our future, but we're deliberately trying to be better. And, you know, when Logan, not to speak for Logan, but Logan got that photo of Casa kissing the puppy. And I don't, Logan, it didn't take you very long to forward it to me. And it, it just was, it was perfect timing with the perfect story to help us um, start this conversation. Um, because if, if, Something that we all care about is Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever members, the Uplands. You know, I keep referring to Upland community. and I mean, that's that's where I'm comfortable making the stand for our organization, right? And that's that's the sphere of influence that that uh, we we have an opportunity to impact. And if we want to continue to create habitat for wild birds and public access for bird hunters, it's going to take a hell of a lot more than the traditional white middle Americans. Um, and, and that's not a slap against white middle Americans. We're, no. My parents are them. I'm them. Um, but we need to change pace with the, the changing demographics of this country and share the love that we all have for bird dogs and wild birds and wild places and and you shared that love by adopting Casa and bringing them into to the uplands because it's what you love. And that's what's so perfect about this story. It's not contrived. It's 100% authentic. And as you say, being, being Black in America or being Black in Montana, well, part of being Black in Montana as Eric Peterson's son is learning how to bird hunt. And That's ex right. is it experiencing the whole range of, of uh, what that means. So I, I can't tell you how, how thankful we are that you shared this story with us. I'll call, uh, uh, I'll point people to the, uh, the fall journal. Uh, it's a, it's a feature story with Eric's words and Eric's images um, we are going to make it available online. So um, if, if folks are not current members of Pheasants Forever and don't currently get the journal, A, we want them to join. So please become a member of Pheasants Forever. You can 
do so at pheasantsforever.org. But um, to put um, um, the conviction where where we say it is, we're going to make this story because we believe it is so critically important to everybody to read. Uh, we're going to make it available free online on our website. And uh, uh, we find we hope you find the images and the words as compelling as, as we do. Um, before we close this episode, I want to touch on the other half of your talent set, which is the filmmaking. And let's tease our listeners. We won't give them the full story because there will be another podcast with Eric Peterson down the road. But Eric, let's let's tell listeners a little bit, set the stage for the film, A Long Way Home. What's that going to be about in the, um, in the coming months? Yeah, I'm super excited about this one. Uh, ever since I've started down this path of making films, I've been trying to figure out a way to pair my passion for pheasant hunting with my filmmaking. And I, and I finally pulled it off, I think, with this story, A Long Way Home, which I've partnered with Pheasants Forever on to um, tell. We'll be shooting it primarily this fall in South Dakota. And it's a story that revolves around uh, the, the tradition of hunting and family and bird dogs and um, and hunting memories and fam. I guess I said family. It's just a lot of really, <laughs> really uh, important and poignant mm-hmm. things that are wrapped up in upland hunting, which, um, which is like, I, I couldn't be more excited to be telling this story. So I can't wait to talk more about it when we're ready to. But <laughs> in the meantime, know, know that there's a there's a pheasant hunting film in the works. Yeah. So so for folks um, setting their calendar for National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic in Sioux Falls, um, that is our target time frame for unveiling um, the world premiere of Eric Peterson's uh, Pheasants Forever collaborative film, uh, South Dakota Tourism and a Perina Pro Plan Dog Food also partners um, in this film. And uh, as I said, we're not gonna give away the whole story. We'll let the film speak for itself when we unveil it, but we'll do another podcast with Eric um, down the road. Logan, any final thoughts as people uh, get ready to take a field and uh, um, the upland pheasant season, and then shortly after that, quail seasons of 2020 kick off. You got any closing words for us? Um, just that, you know, I, I think just to go out and, you know, enjoy the, the fall ahead and, and the hunt and, you know, being able to capture those memories for future, I, you know, shoot away. That's, that's the beauty of digital film, right? So shoot, shoot, shoot. Um, you know, you're probably going to come away with an, an image or two that you'll, you'll have as a keepsake forever. And if folks, uh, maybe there's professional photographers out there or filmmakers that we don't know. Um, and obviously we're actively searching for, bird hunting, habitat restoration photos, particularly with the human beings in those photos being more females and illustrating a little more ethnic diversity than historically has been part of the uplands. How do people reach out to you and uh, get photography in front of your, your eyeballs, Logan? 
Yeah. Yeah. Just go ahead and shoot me an email at L and then my last name's Peters, H-I-N-N-E-R-S at pheasantsforever.org. Um, feel free to shoot me a note, e- email me some photos to look at. And, um, you know, I usually keep a, a folder with a name folder, if you will, of, you know, different photographers that I work with. And um, I'll hold on to images and my myself and my team when we're putting together different marketing pieces or or the publications, you know, we have those photos at our fingertips and um, can kind of find and match photos to stories and, and try, I don't know, capturing the emotion and, and the treasure that we have in the uplands. Is there, a, is there a holy grail photo that you've always had in your mind that we haven't? Because I think um, I, I when I ask that question, in my mind, I'm thinking of the perfect covey rise of a quail exploding in front of a, a pointing dog and a, a couple of hunters. Uh, are, are there holy grail photos that you think about? Uh, that's a tough one. I, I've seen some incredible shots. You know, I, the uplands are so diverse, um, you know, whether it's bird dogs, different species within the uplands, you know, different habitat types, um, you know, people hunting. I, there's so many ways you could go with that. It'd be hard for me to, to pinpoint exactly what that image would look like. So there's, there's several avenues there, but I, you know, I, I would think if you could capture a photo with, you know, a lab and a pointer, um, to keep both par- parties happy, uh, female, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that would be a pretty powerful photo, but, um, yeah. you know, I, I think there's a lot of avenues you can go to, to capture super powerful imagery, but, um, you know, any of those subject matters would be great. Eric, is there a holy grail photo that you're chasing as a professional? Oh, man, there's a lot of holy grail photos that I'm chasing. But, you know, I guess to bring it back to Long Way Home, there's a holy grail video clip that I'm really hoping to get in South Dakota. And I think if there's any place to get it, it's probably South Dakota of, you know, that rooster rising off of a point, off the dog's nose with the hunter slightly out of focus in the background, like that Mm. classic image. That's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping for. But, you know, sometimes, sometimes uh, what you set out to get ends up being not even as good as what you end up with and couldn't imagine. So I try to keep my mind open when I go out in the field with the camera that there's this iconic image that I might want to get, but there might be a better one that I don't even know about mm-hmm. uh where where will you be heading obviously you're going to be hunting south dakota this year you're probably going to hunt montana mm-hmm. uh living in montana any other uh, upland trips that are on your calendar for the season ahead not out of state i've got a couple i mean our our traditional boys hunt up to northern montana will be uh late October after I get back from South Dakota, I'm looking forward to that and having two boys with guns this year and two dogs. Cause we just added a, a German short hair puppy to the mix. So we've got a, I've got a four year old poodle pointer and a, and now seven month old German short hair, uh, who's, who's already got some bird experience under his belt. So I'm just excited for, you know, to get the kids out and get the puppy out and go chase pheasants around Montana. Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to going chasing pheasants around Montana in the near future, too. <laughs> if if folks have not been to Montana, 
to chase birds. It, everybody thinks Montana is the place to go hunt elk or mule deer. And, and while that may be the case, it's darn hard to beat Montana from a bird hunting perspective, isn't it? It is. There's such a variety. There's such a variety of, uh, of species here to hunt and a variety of terrain. It's fun to be able to go from pheasants and cattails to, you know, stubble fields with sharp tail to up, up high in the mountains chasing blue grouse. So it's fun to have that variety and a and a nice long season to work with. Yeah. Eric, thank you very much for sharing your story. Um, I know it's clearly a very personal one that means a lot to you. And, uh, we, we are very, very proud that, um, uh, you're partnering with Pheasants Forever to bring this to the masses. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you for having me. And thank you um, to the whole organization for, for taking this on and, and trying to do it well. I appreciate it. Well, it's, uh, it's impossible to see Casa's face and not grin ear to ear when you see his photos. So um, I, again, I'll invite listeners to, to make sure that they're active subscribers to the Pheasants Forever Journal. That's easy to do. Just go to pheasantsforever.org, become a member um, for the good of habitat, for the good of the uplands. And uh, uh, we need everybody. And that truly means everybody. We need you all involved. All right, folks, thank you so much for listening to this episode of On The Wing Podcast. For Logan Hinners and Eric Peterson, I'm Bob St. Pierre saying always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks.